Good morning, welcome again, especially if you're visiting. First Samuel chapter 8. First Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel. The name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, let's pray together and ask for help. One of my goals today is to offend everybody here. And so let's pray and ask that God helps us to hear what he's saying in this chapter. I found it difficult myself. Father, help us to understand what you're saying to us this morning. Help us especially as we consider uh, the ways that human government can go so wrong. Help us to delight uh, and to find peace and joy in the glorious, divine, and human government of Jesus, our King and merciful servant. In his name we ask, amen. Um, I only halfway seriously joked about offending everybody, because if I were going, I don't know about you, but if I were going to rank the greatest idols in our culture, uh, the things that we look to instead of God for security and meaning and happiness, uh, right up there with comfort and personal fulfillment, Personally, I would also place politics and government. Whether we want to make America great again 
or we want to build back better, we live in a society that largely takes it for granted that our needs and our problems are basically political and therefore can only be solved through political leaders and political policies. Like the Israelites here in 1 Samuel 8, we have a deep tendency to place a great deal of hope in human government, with many Christians and churches often caught up in the same anxious fears about elections and policies that we find all through our wider society. I grew up in a church that would have politicians come and speak from the pulpit about uh, what they were going to be doing, uh, a church that would give us little handouts that not very subtly told us exactly how Jesus would vote. I remember even as a 12-year-old thinking it was a bit strange uh, that the Bible had something to say about suburban zoning regulations, but that's what it said. American Christianity, not just in the last few decades, but for a long time, American Christianity has had a very long history on both its right and its left ends of falling under the enchantment of worldly power, assuming that the real action of God's kingdom happens through politics, through seeking political influence, through seeking political policies, through getting the right political people installed that we think with good intentions are going to promote or even impose Christian ideals and ethics on the rest of society, whether they believe in Jesus or not. You see the same kind of false hope here in 1 Samuel 8. It's one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible to understand the whole story of the Bible, not only because it ominously describes a huge change in the life of Israel. They demand a human king to rule them instead of God. But it's also really important because it gives us a backdrop that helps us understand why the Bible tends to be so skeptical about the limited potential of human government to do what it often promises and what we often expect. We saw this skepticism about human government in the book of Ecclesiastes a few months ago, which is pretty ironic because it's written by a king. Uh, and we heard it already this morning in Revelation chapter 18. Uh, it's describing, like I said, the evils of a paradigmatic human government, the Roman Empire back then, but kind of a representative of what can go so wrong with human power. Um, this is the same empire, remember, that uh, the New Testament a couple times calls Christians to submit to. We have three headings today. Israel's problem, Israel's deeper problem, and then Israel's deepest need. Look at verses 1 to 5 where we have Israel's problem. Uh, we have now fast-forwarded quite a bit to the end of Samuel's life from where we were last week. Remember the story last week about Samuel praying for the people and God wins their battle for them without them having to do anything? We're now fast-forwarded. We're at the end of Samuel's life. He's an old man, like we heard about Eli being quite old. Uh, and now we've heard that he made his sons judges over Israel. Uh, if we've been paying attention in the Bible so far, we should be a little bit surprised here to hear that he's done this with his sons. Because so far in Israel's history, uh, when God wants to raise up judges to protect his people, to resolve their conflicts, uh, he does it not in a hereditary way, which is what he does with the priests. The sons and the sons and the sons are automatically the priests. That's not how God has been working with judges. Uh, instead, God either chooses judges, especially he raises them up on his own, 
or in another kind of slightly different category of judges, uh, the people themselves just choose the judges. Um, they appoint them for themselves. They, who is the best at resolving conflicts? Let's have those guys be our judges. Uh, but perhaps with good intentions, Samuel makes his own sons to be judges with him. But even worse, in verse 3, you hear that they're not righteous and holy like he has been. They don't walk in his ways, but rather we hear that they turn aside after gain. They take bribes and they pervert justice. Over and over and over again, all through the Bible, God vehemently condemns these practices, which usually take the form of refusing to hear the legal cases of the poor and the vulnerable, choosing instead to work with and on behalf of the powerful, uh, not because they're right, but because they're the ones who can afford to pay you off, to give them the verdicts and the legislation that are going to best help them to cheat and rob or even kill others, especially the needy, who don't have these resources, these networks, these relationships to get these kinds of verdicts. But this perversion of justice often takes much more subtle forms in the Bible. It can include siding with the majority, not because they're right, but because it benefits me. It can include cheating people out of their wealth and their possessions by diluting their currency, by tweaking their measurement system, by shifting the boundaries of their land. Uh, it can look like taking their stuff just because you think you know better than they do what to do with it. All of that, the Bible says, is perverting justice. Samuel's sons are corrupt, and the people of Israel, understandably, are very sick of it. But instead of crying out to God, like we've heard them do last week in chapter 7, instead of asking Samuel to remove his sons and wait for God to raise up other judges, they do what many nations have done all through history, particularly in the 20th century. They demand a revolution that is going to, in the end, bring them far greater misery and oppression than they were trying to get out of. Verse 5, they say, You are old. Your sons don't walk in your ways. Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. We heard later in verses 19 and 20 that they don't only want this human king to be their judge, like Samuel has been, uh, but that they also want him to go before them and to win their battles for them. Uh, they think that um, they need a king uh, to fight against people like the Philistines uh, and to deal with injustice at home. They jealously look out at all the nations around them, the ones that God has very jealously told them, don't be like those people, you don't need to be like them, it's bad to be like them. They look around at all these other nations and they say, we're missing out. We need an impressive and an empowerful human king like they have to get the justice and the safety that they all seem to enjoy so abundantly. In chapter 4, they faced a real problem, but proposed a religious solution. Remember, they said, let's bring the ark into battle. Then God will help us. Here in chapter 8, they once again are facing a real problem, injustice in the legal system, but they propose their own political solution. They say, let's get ourselves a king. He's sure to protect us. But this, too, is going to end in disaster, but not uh, over the course of a couple of battles, like in chapter 4. This disaster is going to last for a thousand years. That's Israel's problem. But in the main part of the chapter, verses 6 to 18, we see that they actually have a deeper problem than they think they do. You hear that their request displeases Samuel. 
Uh, literally, it says the request was evil to him. I don't think it's just because he's upset uh, that they don't like his sons. Uh, but they come to Samuel, and now Samuel goes to the Lord in verse 7. And then again in verse 9, the Lord says, obey them. Even though it's quite clear that what they want is evil. God explains the deeper problem in verse 7. He says, they've not rejected you, they've rejected me from being king over them. And so you see, it's not just a political miscalculation, it's not just a pragmatic miscalculation, it's fundamentally a spiritual one. Israel has been so unique among the nations because it was ruled by the one true God himself. They don't need a king. The divine king that they've already had has always provided for them. He's always protected them, just like he did at the end of chapter 7 when he defeated the Philistines just by making a big loud noise. Uh, And the God who has consistently promised to right every injustice, to pay attention to what's happening to the weak and the needy in society, to never let anything slide against them, he did that by taking out Eli and his corrupt sons a few chapters ago. But in demanding a human king, God says they're really rejecting me as their king. It's really the same basic sin of Adam and Eve. Instead of ruling under God as his image bearers, which is what they were created to do, they gave in to this satanic lie that they could become like gods in asserting their autonomy from the creator. Adam and Eve, like all humans ever since, like you and me, don't want to live under God. They want to rule instead of God. In Exodus 19, God tells the Israelites at Mount Sinai that they are going to be a kingdom of priests and a royal priesthood. They're going to live under God's benevolent rule like nobody else gets to do in the world. In the book of Judges, which is the one that happens right before Samuel, uh, there's a point at which the people of Israel go to the mighty, victorious judge named Gideon, and they say, wow, this is great. You know, this is really good. You're a good judge. You're winning all these battles for us. Uh, Why don't you and your sons become king over us? And Gideon there rightly refuses it. He says, I will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. But even Gideon, in the next couple of stories, uh, even he starts to act like a king. And later, one of his own sons makes himself a king until it ends in complete humiliation. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, uh, Moses' law that he's giving to Israel, uh, Moses acknowledges and grants that there's going to come a day when Israel wants to have a king for itself, a human king. Uh, Moses kind of accedes to that and he says uh, that's okay but there are going to be sharp limits on what that king is going to be like and what he can do he can't be wealthy he can't have lots of wives which back then was a way of making complicated military alliances with other nations Uh, and he can't have a standing army he needs to have a very small personal defense force a very small military Uh, but you see here in first samuel 8 samuel promising the opposite of all those things israel is done with god's way of doing kingship Just like Adam did, they are opting instead for the human way, the Adam way of doing kingship, which always leads to misery. Just like God warned Adam and just like he'd already warned Israel at Sinai, so now he warns them again about what happens when people reject God's rule, particularly when very powerful people reject God's rule. You read in verse 8 that this has always been Israel's basic problem ever since the Exodus. They've been chasing after other gods. They've been serving and worshiping them 
instead of their generous and merciful God. God says they've abandoned me. That word is often used in the Old Testament to describe a woman being left by her husband. So now Israel is rejecting God by looking to human government instead of to him for their salvation and their safety. God tells Samuel, somewhat surprisingly, do what they say. God, like we read about in Romans chapter 1, God hands them over to their sin. But God says to Samuel, solemnly warn them. Tell them the ways of the king who's going to rule over them. Trying to dissuade them, but knowing that they're not going to hear it. Uh, In profound and dismal irony, this word here in verses 9 and 11 about the ways of the king, that word ways, uh, is literally the same word justice. He says, show them the justice, the quote-unquote justice of the king who's going to rule over them. Uh, We just heard about Samuel's sons perverting justice. Uh, The word for judge in Hebrew is based on this same word. And so God is saying to Samuel, uh, through Samuel, he's saying, oh, you want justice? You want justice without me? Uh, Okay, let me tell you about the farcical and the oppressive scare quote justice that you're going to get. There is no real justice without God. In verses 11 and following, you hear about all the ways that the king is going to abuse the people. I don't think Samuel is talking about just one king. He's not just talking about Saul or maybe Solomon. But rather, he's giving a paradigm. He's giving an example of human kingship, the basic model and pattern that Israel was going to see for a thousand years uh, with some very limited and still very disappointing exceptions. And if Israel's kings were going to be this bad, with all the privileges they had, all the blessings they had of having God's word spoken clearly to them, having God's temple right there with them, having prophets around telling them what God wanted, if even they were so bad, how much worse off are the kings of the world who don't have God's word and who don't have God's presence? A couple of key words here are take and serve. Take and serve. In asking for a human king, what Israel is going to get is a centralized power that will be characterized by theft. Uh, Multiple times, over and over, we hear that the king is going to take from the people. He's going to take their children. He's going to force them into his service. Some of that is going to be for a military draft, and some of that's going to be for public works projects. He's also going to take people. He's going to enlist them into his bureaucracy for the sake of his and its personal enrichment and glory. We also hear that he's going to take local workers, he's going to uh, co-opt local businesses to build his weaponry. We have here Israel's military-industrial complex being built. But it's not only that he's going to take and enlist people and children and workers, he's going to worm his way into people's families. Uh, It's also that he's going to take their wealth, the best of their fields and vineyards and animals, much of which Samuel warns them he's going to give to his buddies, to his cronies. You hear in verses 15 and 17 that he's going to take a tenth of their property, which of course in the Old Testament is the proportion that God often sets aside for himself. And so this, in a way that's probably hard for us to understand today, this is meant to shock you. This is meant to be horrifying. In confiscating 10% of their wealth, the king is taking God's place. And look at verse 17. This level of taxation means that the people are going to effectively be his slaves. They weren't literally his slaves, but Samuel says, for all intents and purposes, you will be his slaves. In the Egyptian exodus, God had rescued Israel out of slavery, but now, horrifically, they are choosing to go back into it. 
even though I'm sure many of them would have continued to claim that they loved God, that they were living as free people, and that they were still happy to serve him too. At the end of the day, all sin is a kind of slavery. It's a kind of going back to Egypt. It's a kind of lying to ourselves about how wonderful it is to live apart from God. But just like the Israelites in Egypt, just like it's going to be for Israel in the future, it's going to be miserable. The Bible, both the Old and the New Testaments, is quite grim about human government. It's quite grim about its tendency toward the things that Samuel warns about here. Personal enrichment, military swagger, cronyism that masquerades as public service. Samuel is not telling them about every possible evil tendency of human power, like you see in the rest of Scripture. Samuel doesn't tell them things that you hear about lots of other places, like he's going to kill you, uh, he's going to cheat you sometimes. Those are real things that really happen. Uh, But it seems to me that here Samuel is showing us some of the more subtle and enchanting tendencies of human power, uh, some of the more subtle and enchanting and therefore insidious motivations beneath it all. It's also appealing. They look around at the world around them and they say, this looks pretty good, we want some of that. Samuel is trying to take back the mask for them. And so we should not idolize or romanticize the state like Israel does here. Uh, We should not seek ultimate safety and salvation in it rather than in God. Instead, even while God calls Christians to respect those that he puts in power above us, uh, we should be quite realistic, quite shrewd about human government. Not only because like all human institutions, like all things touched by people, it's twisted by sinfulness and spiritual darkness, but particularly because it has a monopoly on violence. They're the ones with the SWAT teams. They're the ones that can come and take your stuff, unlike you and me. Paul calls this the bearing of the sword in Romans chapter 13. Uh, whether that sword is being used to confiscate or to imprison or to kill. There is not a mystical sinlessness that comes about through voting. There is not an automatic integrity that somebody gains when they ascend into government office, whether you're talking about the police or the scientists or the politicians or the economists or the soldiers. And democracy does not automatically remove the dangers of human government. Even here in 1 Samuel chapter 8 and the rest of the Old Testament, you hear over and over again about how the people are choosing the king. In many ways, they're getting the king they want. Uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a Soviet dissident, has this great line where he says people, uh, and he's talking particularly to people in the West, he says people like to tell themselves that this kind of thing could never happen here. And he says, no, no. All the evils of the 20th century can happen anywhere on earth. Hitler was elected. The German people were disgusted by corruption and injustice and inequality. They believed his diabolical promises to save them and give him security. I've been reading through St. Augustine's book called The City of God, where he's talking about kind of human history and the Bible um, and how we live as citizens of this world but also of the world to come. And there's one part, um, this is in the early 5th century, the early 400s. Augustine says this, reflecting on the ways that human power can go so wrong. He says, without justice, what are kingdoms but great gangs of robbers? 
For what are gangs of robbers themselves but little kingdoms? The gang itself is made up of men. It's governed by the authority of a ruler. It's bound together by a pact of association. And the loot is divided according to an agreed law. If by the constant addition of desperate men, this scourge grows to such a size that it acquires territory, establishes a seat of government, occupies cities, and subjugates peoples, it assumes the name of kingdom, not by the removal of greed, but by the addition of impunity. It has the name kingdom, not by the removal of greed, but by the addition of impunity. And so just like with church government, just like with the elders ruling over this church, God strictly limits the proper scope of civil government. Even though, of course, we can have debates about pragmatic reasons. We might want civil government to be handling different things. Um, But in terms of what Scripture says, this is definitely what it's supposed to be doing. It is to rule according to God's standards of justice, which are most clearly seen in Scripture. They are, Paul says in Romans 13, as you see throughout the Bible, they are to violently punish evil in order to defend and encourage the good. The Puritan Samuel Rutherford, who helped write the Westminster Confession, said that arbitrary governing has no alliance with God. The Westminster Confession that he helped to write says that Christians are only obligated to obey the magistrate's lawful commands and that they may only fight in wars that are both lawful and necessary. Justice does not mean whatever the strongest guy in the room says. It does not just mean whatever I want. It's not whatever works. It's not whatever the majority votes for. Something is not just because somebody claims that it's for the common good or for the poor or for factory workers or for children or for Christians. Justice cannot be redefined or watered down or laid aside just because somebody has something that I want or because somebody claims that our world is more dangerous or more complicated than it used to be. All tyrants through all of history, have claimed that what they were doing, they were doing for the good of society. They have claimed that they were representing the people. They have claimed that they are the people. Israel had a real problem. Corruption, the perversion of justice. God hates those things. There is no place for them among his people and in his world. But they had a much deeper problem. The idolatrous rejection of God's rule and protection over them desiring what everybody else around them had. They wanted an impressive and a glorious ruler who would just do something about all their problems, internal and external. Through thievery and through selfishness, however, this justice, quote-unquote, of human government would often turn out to be nothing more than more injustice. And so God says to them in verse 18, In that day you're going to cry out to me because of your king, whom you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you. It's terrifying. It's supposed to be like a punch in the stomach. God is judging his idolatrous people by giving them what they want. Because of their constant stubbornness, God says, I'm not going to bail you out anymore. You want to reject me? You want to reject my rule over you? He says, fine, I'll give it to you. They're going to learn the hard way about the utter insanity of humans pretending that they can rule the world instead of God rather than under God. But that's not going to be the end of the story for them. could have been the end of the story. God would have been just and righteous to let this be the end of the story for them. They're about to choose Saul as their king, and he's going to quickly fail. God and they will then choose David, who's going to be pretty good, 
But even he will be something of a disappointment. He will fall far short of the goodness and the integrity of God's own rule, even though God promises David that he's going to have a ruler on his throne forever and ever. After David, things are going to go downhill very fast for Israel in line with the corruption and the excess that Samuel's warning about with one terrible humiliation after another. They'll be humiliated when they are exiled into Babylon. They'll be humiliated by the complete clown show of Herod ruling over them, a puppet king installed and controlled by the hated and the wicked Romans. Like Adam and Eve, Israel has foolishly opted for human kingship instead of divine kingship. The Old Testament is largely a story of a desperate and aching longing for the reversal of what Samuel warns about here. The Old Testament is largely about seeing Israel's and humanity's deeper problem met by their and our deepest need to know and to love and to obey God. The Bible is all about God's gracious plan to restore human rule under God's rule, particularly through David's descendants. All of that, of course, comes to a head with Jesus. He's an obscure craftsman from the backwoods of Palestine who comes announcing that in himself and through himself, God's kingdom has returned. God is king again, he says. And they say, what are you talking about? Who are you? Jesus says, in himself, we have the merciful return of God's perfect justice and peace on earth for a sinful and idolatrous people. God's rule and human rule kiss each other in Jesus, the Son of David and the Son of God, true human and true God, we confess in our confessions. And so don't put your hope in mere human government. It can do real good in this world. It does have its place, but ultimately it cannot save us. It cannot protect us. Only Jesus can. Because only in Jesus has God returned to rule over our world as Jesus so majestically demonstrates in his victorious defeat of death. And so as citizens of Jesus' kingdom, while also remaining citizens of whatever other kingdoms we might be, let's hope in Jesus. Let's follow him. Let's not be like the kings that Samuel warns about, this universal human tendency, especially when we have power. Let's not take from each other. Let's not devour each other. Let's not use each other for our own glory and our own status. But instead, Jesus calls us to serve one another. Instead, Jesus calls us onto the path of the cross where we see him not robbing other people, not taking from other people, but giving everything for other people. And as we do that, as we seek the kingdom of God, as we live as citizens of Jesus' upside-down kingdom, that's how we finally learn to have this peace and this freedom to love everybody around us, no matter what's going wrong in our world. Let's pray. Father, help us to find our deepest hope and our deepest joy in Jesus. Uh, the earliest Christians had no voice in their society. They had no way to influence anything that was happening in the government above them, and yet they remained joyful and peaceful and confident in you. Help us to be more like them. Help us to be like the many, many Christians around the world today who have no say over what's happening in their society. Help us to live as your citizens, Jesus, 
uh, in service and humility and love towards each other, towards you, towards the world. We pray in your name. Amen.